Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Russian President Vladimir Putin has made some dubious claims about his reasons for invading Ukraine. Dear comrades, your fathers, your grandfathers fought against the Nazis, not so that Nazis could now take over power in Ukraine. Many of those claims seem to rest on beliefs about Ukraine and the West that are unfounded or reflected his deep distrust of NATO. In fact, one of his favorite lines is that NATO was getting too big, too powerful, and was pushing east towards Russian land. The NATO bloc started developing territories adjacent to us, and therefore, in a planned way, we're creating absolutely unacceptable threats. Experts say Putin had hoped that his aggression would weaken NATO and split the 73-year-old alliance. Well, we're nearly three months into this conflict now, and that just hasn't happened. In fact, NATO appears to be growing. Just moments ago, the Finnish parliament voted overwhelmingly in favor of joining the alliance. Just a few months ago, they wouldn't have had the votes. The best thing for the security of Sweden and the security of the Swedish people is to join NATO and to do it together with Finland. Today, the countries of Finland and Sweden are expected to make it official and hand in their applications to join NATO together. My guest today is CNN international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson. We focus on one of those countries and talk about why after decades of neutrality with Russia just across the border, Finland is now willing to risk angering its neighbor while possibly reshaping the world order in the process. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Ryan. So, Nick, we're talking on Monday. You've been in Helsinki, Finland for a while now reporting on that country's intention of joining NATO. I want to get to that in a second. But first, can we go back a bit further? Because, you know, I think for some of our listeners who aren't totally up to date on their maps of Europe may not realize that Finland shares a pretty big border with Russia. So historically, what kind of relationship have those two countries had? Pretty rocky at times. Finland was a long time ago, a um, little bit less than two centuries ago, part of Russia. Hmm. If you go to the town of Laparenta in the east of Finland, they remember when the when the Russians came to town in 1841. Uh, they stormed the fort. Indeed, they've got a log of wood memorialized in a in a in a sort of a metal structure just outside this historic fort, where, as legend would have it. The Russians came to town, slaughtered everyone in the fort, smashed all the buildings down, and in the rivers of blood, this log ran down the hill. So, hmm. so yeah, 1841 would be one of those dates the Finns would look to when the Russians arrived in a rather aggressive manner. But go back to the beginning of the Second World War, and it's what the Finns know as the uh, Winter War, 1939, which was a pretty 
uh, nasty and brutal war with the, with the Red Army. And, and what the Red Army discovered, that the Finns are really well adapted and professional at fighting in their sort of dense pine and birch forests uh, on a very sandy terrain that's got a lot of lakes um, and a lot of rivers in it, big, fast-flowing rapids, that the Finns were very adept at uh, fighting in those conditions. Nevertheless, the Red Army was, and the Soviets were, were, were such a formidable force that the, the, the way that the Finns could best avoid the aggression historically back then at the end of the Second World War was to become what has been subsequently termed as sort of uh, Finlandization, a, a neutrality, uh, non-alignment, an armed non-alignment is the way that they would describe mm. it. You know, we think of this period, the past period of the last maybe 60 or 70 years between the Soviet Union, then Russia and Finland as being a relatively stable period in the relationship. But it's not one that's been built on trust. And the, and the evidence of that is actually underneath the country and underneath Helsinki and underneath other cities in the country that Finland has a system of bunkers and shelters for 4.4 million of its 5.5 million population. Helsinki has bunkers large enough to house 900,000 people during war. And these mm. have been built um, since the 1960s, and, and they're still being built today because the Finns have feared Russia to the extent that they would invest so heavily in protecting so many of their population against potential war to them that has felt like a very real threat for a very long time. You know, you mentioned that they, they kind of have this Finlandization and they kind of coexist somewhat peacefully, the two countries. What was the reaction when Russia annexed Crimea back in 2014, the previous Russian aggression that got the world's attention? There was concern. Finland's part of the European Union and obviously subsequent to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, the Finns, along with the rest of the European Union, um, put sanctions on Russia. So that began to test the relationship a little bit. But along with the rest of the European Union, they didn't believe that Russia would act more aggressively and thought that that would be the limits of what Russia would do and that their non-aligned status and relatively calm disposition with Russia would stand the test of time. When we look at Russia, we, sh we see very different kind of Russia today than we saw uh, just a few months ago. Everything However, late last year when Russia presented its security proposals, which said that NATO could not expand eastwards, and that was taken to understand very clearly from the Russian side that that included Finland and Sweden, then the Finns and the Swedes both recognized that there'd been a step change in the Russian government's thinking. No longer was Finland being treated as a, as a sovereign power, um, that it, it was being told by, by another power that it had no right to decide its own security future and who it could align with. Everything has changed when Russia attacked Ukraine. And I personally think that we cannot trust anymore that there will be a peaceful future uh, next to Russia. Uh, but then on the 24th of February, when Russia invaded Ukraine, that was the sea change. That was the moment the vast majority of people in Finland who'd sat on the fence before about NATO membership realized that the only place that they could feel secure with a Russia and a President Putin that was willing to take these risks that he hadn't in the past, the only place they were going to be safe was inside NATO. 
our land is zero meters. <laughs> Your land is on the border? Yes. How do you feel about that now? Confused. <laughs> Can you tell me what the border between Finland and Russia actually looks like? I know you saw it from the ground and from the air. Can you paint a picture for me? An 830-mile border. The best way to see how finely drawn the, the border between Russia and Finland is. There's no uh, big concrete wall as we sort of imagined when we remember the Berlin Wall being. Thank you. All right. We're not allowed to walk across the field, but at the other side of the field, less than 100 yards, 100 meters away, it's a low waist-high fence, a few wooden poles and some wire. And when you fly along that border... From up here, you can really see just how fine the border is, tracing its way across the countryside. It snakes its way through dense forests, across rivers. It's not heavily patrolled. There's electronic monitoring there, but there's very little to stop them coming across the border, and, and the Finns absolutely recognize that, and recognize that the assurances that President Putin would give them were not worth the air that he used to, to pronounce them. If that would be the case that we join, well, my response would be that you caused this. Look at the mirror because the Russian government had been seen to lie repeatedly, repeatedly about its intentions on Ukraine. And the assessment was, not only do we have a long border, um, but we absolutely cannot trust the government in, in Moscow anymore. So how does this actually work then for Finland, for Sweden? What kind of timetable are we looking at here? They're going through the process right now. It would sort of become a formalized request at the NATO Leaders Summit at the end of June in Madrid. And then it would go to member governments to go through whatever legal process they would have. And we heard from Mitch McConnell uh, when he was meeting with the Finnish president, Sauli Nisto, uh, saying that he expected the U.S. Senate to be able to vote on this at the end of August. So there will be a matter of months where the different national governments of the NATO nations will vote. Mr. President, President Erdogan has indicated that he's not looking positively about the possibility of Finland joining NATO. Does that give you concern? To be frank, I'm a bit confused. And Turkey is having some reservations here. And President Erdogan recently said that he's not looking positively upon the possibility of Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Turkey is open to our membership, but it turned back to no, or uh, let's say negative side. He said that his concern, because he thinks that they're giving sanctuary to leaders of the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party, a, a Kurdish separatist organization that Turkey considers a terrorist organization. And it seems very clear that he wants uh, NATO members as well as EU members, uh, and as specifically Finland and, and uh, Sweden, to look at their policies. There's also an issue, it seems, of defence sales that have been from Sweden and Finland and perhaps some other NATO nations restricted to Turkey. So President Erdogan looks at opportunities like this as a sort of a bazaar, as a place to go to negotiate to get some of the things that he wants. President Erdogan seems to have introduced a wrinkle rather than a roadblock. That's what Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, said he believes that this, this can be resolved, that Finland and Sweden have the support of many other nations. So Erdogan is a wild card in terms of NATO. 
So remind me, Nick, what does the country get when they join the alliance and what is expected of them to contribute once they're part of it? In short, they get a lot. They get to be part of uh, the biggest and most successful defensive military alliance in the Western world. Uh, They get the backing of the 30 other nations who are members already. So if Finland is attacked in the future by any nation, it has the right to call and request and expect to get the support of all other NATO members. And that's what they get. What Finland has to remember going into this, and Finland's obligation would be that if Poland were attacked, then Finland would be, along with all the other NATO members, expected to come to Poland's aid. So there are quid pro quos, but I think Finland's assessment is that what NATO also gets out of this is it really shores up its security in the Nordic region and particularly in the Baltic region. And remembering it's the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, who feel most threatened by President Putin at the moment because they're small, because they were historically states within the Soviet Union. Uh, They're worried about that past. They're worried about uh, the possibility of Russian invasion. There are defensive alliances between the Nordic nations and the Baltic states. But if Finland were part of NATO, that would present Russia with a much greater uh, military threat were it to try to uh, annex again Latvia, Lithuania and and Estonia. More of my conversation with Nick Robertson in just a minute. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So, Nick, you've been on the ground in Helsinki taking the temperature of people there. How do they feel about potentially joining NATO? It's obviously a huge change after many, many decades. It's very interesting. You, you have people who will tell you... Excellent choice, because... This is the right decision. I've been waiting for this. Joining NATO would be that gate to us, that no one would invade us. Okay. And, and, and you, what do you, what do you think about it? I'm now pro-NATO. I, I was, uh, like many Finns, uh, just before this war started, uh, a little bit... Uh, 
hesitating about it and, and I had a very a funny conversation with a with a gentleman he must have been in his 50s maybe and I said to him well what do you think about joining NATO I have a very old father he's 96 so he was here when when we had our wars in Finland and he said you know my father's generation fought the the Red Army they fought the Soviet Union and he's been talking about you know the you know, Russians can come anytime and he said my father said to me well the Russians, we've got to join NATO. And I said, oh, my father, you're back in the you know, 40s and take it easy. And they're not, yeah, yeah, yeah you never. You know, be right. quiet, father. You're just remembering the Soviets. That was back in the day. Don't worry, don't worry. And his father, father, oh, no, they're Russians. The Russians, you can't trust them. And he said, you know what? I had to turn to my 96-year-old father and say, well, you were right. Guess you got to listen to your parents. That's the message there. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they know better. I, I was talking to uh, some students, some PhD and master's students at uh, the University of, uh, of Helsinki. You're against NATO. Yeah. Why? It's a military alliance led by um, a superpower that has waged horrendous wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I understand. And they were concerned that you know, as one of them described it. You know, we're aligning with the bear to fight the wolf, and the bear doesn't have such a great reputation. Mm. She and others there were concerned that joining NATO would would, would pin Finland, which has had this history of neutrality, um, to a more aggressive, in her mind, military alliance. I think uh, we are currently, as a society, very emotionally charged. And that is why I'm inclined to sort of say that perhaps now is not the greatest time to make such a huge decision. If at this moment we take this stance towards the whole of Russia, what does it mean in a situation where, where hopefully the regime changes at some point to, to a more positive direction? And Some of them were, their minds weren't made up. You know, but I think like young people everywhere, they, they, they were questioning a decision that was being made in haste that they really feel their generation was going to live with the legacy of because their generation will live with it longer than you know longer than the the, the political class let's say who are mostly older who are, will make the decision and they won't be inheriting uh, the results in 30 or 40 years uh, so on russia's perspective here obviously this is not what they wanted the whole idea behind some of this aggression in ukraine was to weaken NATO and break up some of those alliances. And now it seems that it's going to gain two members by the time this is all done, if not more. So how is Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin responding to this? This is really going to put Putin in a corner domestically. Um, he survives on lies um, and propaganda and has been able to propagandize the war in Ukraine as a necessary war um, against NATO because NATO was, was arming Ukraine and that was a threat to Russia. And has characterized the war in Ukraine um, as one to just take Donbass. Now he's in a position where it will be very clear to the Russian population that actually NATO has become bigger along Russia's border. So it's going to make for President Putin much harder uh, to sell what he does in Ukraine as, as a victory. Mm. He will manipulate the situation and he will find a way to take advantage of it. I don't think he'll be able to do that quickly. His military is focused uh, in Ukraine. He can't afford to stretch it out along a northern border like Finland. Uh, he hasn't been fast in responding to European and US sanctions. He's been quite slow in finding exactly how he'll choose to hit back at the international community. But he'll find a way.
Whatever way he finds, he will then try to sell that at home as a success. But that's dangerous because there are no obvious successes with Finland's membership of NATO that he can sell. So bottom line here, Nick, with NATO potentially expanding, what is the impact on the war in Ukraine and the rest of the world? Is this like a reshaping of the world order? It's a reshaping of the world order. It's not something that will be reversed readily. As long as Putin is in power and probably for a period afterwards, this is going to feel as if there is a new Iron Curtain falling across the eastern flanks of Europe, a protective, defensive curtain. And there is going to be a reversion to the distance that existed during the Soviet Union, during the Cold War. This is a different period, though. The global economies are much more intertwined. China's a rising power, and there will be lessons for them in this But there's also a possibility of sort of bifurcating not only the global economy, but global narratives in terms of, you know, distrust about the possibilities of of fake news, of of cyber attacks, of having a, of really having a much bigger split in the world in, in a way that we didn't have before because we didn't have the interconnectedness before. And there are some real long-term implications. And we can't, today, we can't know how they're going to play out. Let's look at the way that China's coming out of COVID at the moment. In economic terms, it's going to come out of this very unevenly, and it's not there yet. This is going to be a factor in their decision-making, as well as what they've seen in Russia. And, And President Putin's still in power, so there's a lot more unpredictability to come. Well, Nick Robertson, fascinating time there in Europe. Thanks for keeping track of it for us. Thank you very much indeed. That's all for us today. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. And remember, CNN Five Things will keep you up to date with the latest developments on the ground in Ukraine and in Europe. Subscribe wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horowitz, Nathan Miller, and Paula Ortiz. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Elizabeth Roberts. I'll talk to you next time. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts. This week on The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Kara Swisher and I spoke before a live audience of students and professors at the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at American University. The former tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal is on a massive book tour. Her memoir is titled Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. It's not the tech that's the problem. It's the people manipulating the tech. So I guess you could say I'm an activist. I'm an activist for unaccountable power not being unaccountable. 
Listen to the assignment with Audie Cornish on Spotify.